Our scripture passage this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what I have to do with judging outsiders, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. As we all know, yesterday, a momentous day in our country as we reflect on one of the more significant events in the last half century, 20 years since 9-11. And I'm sure you, like me, had a mix of emotions. I don't know how many of you got to see um, the W's speech yesterday. But it sure made me miss statesmanship and class. I had a mix of emotions of gratitude for a number of reasons, our freedom, some heroes, um, but also frustration at where we are. And I know many of you share that as well, especially as we think about Afghanistan. And things don't look good in our country. And it might get worse. But, you know, it's good to remind ourselves that Jesus never promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against America. They may. But he did promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And we can trust that through the hard times, the church will be strengthened. And so we want to build strong churches. That's what we want. We want here to build a strong church, and we want to be about the building of strong churches who faithfully represent King Jesus and promote the gospel. And so let's consider that as we join together, bow our heads and pray. Father, you are holy. Holy, holy, holy. Set apart unlike any other in this world and you call us to be holy and we know that we're not. And so we sing and we celebrate that rugged cross, our salvation where by faith in your son, our debt is paid. Because of what he did for us, we've been freed 
from the curse. And so we're thankful for the empty tomb, for the resurrection of your son, which guarantees our resurrection. Father, we do pray for our government. We pray for leaders who will uphold the Constitution. Pray for freedom. Pray that you would maintain especially religious freedom, that we might continue to be able to be who you call us to be, unhindered. But if you have other plans, if that's not your will, would you help us to be strong? Would you help us to be all in? Would these events remind us of ultimately whose we are? Strengthen our hearts, steal our spines. God, pray for Glenna Pocock that you would be with her even now in a special way. Her faith in you and her resolve and her love for you and your goodness and your glory and your sovereignty has been encouraging to many of us and we pray that that would continue to be the case that today she would be encouraged and tomorrow especially as we have some closure that she would be encouraged and ultimately that you would be near to her, you would be her portion, she would draw near to you in a special way. Continue to use her and use her even more for your glory. God, we pray for the fellers overseas that you would be with them as they've had setback after setback that you would strengthen them. And again, even right now, God, would your spirit be near them and encourage them and that your Holy Spirit would shed abroad in their heart your unfathomable love for them and that they would just rest content and joyful in that fact alone. But we also pray for favor this week. God, we're thankful for the ladies who were able to go to the Susan Heck conference. Thank you for Susan and her gift of teaching and and being able to honor you and help the church even just a few weeks after her own husband passed. We pray that you would continue to bless her ministry and that she would help ladies follow you. And God, I pray for those ladies who were able to go, that you would continue to bear fruit by your spirit through your word and that they would then in turn redound that word here in our congregation as they come back. And God, as we turn to yet more countercultural teaching, help us to receive it. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, our king, who lives and reigns with you and the spirit, ever one God. Amen. Well, we are in week four of a six-week series on Membership Matters. We normally just walk through books of the Bible. We'll be in Matthew here in a few weeks. We've been in Matthew and be in Matthew for another year or so. But we're taking a break to talk about why membership matters, but also talk about the matters of membership. In week one, we talked about the centrality of the local church, something that is often missed in, in our individualistic culture. But the church, Ephesians 3, was God's eternal purpose. It's the apple of his eye, and so it ought to be the apple of our eye. And we talked about the nature of the church that first week, the fact that all in the church membership are to be believers. Baptists historically have called it regenerate church membership. It's the Baptist mark of the church. And what we mean is that everyone in the church is to be regenerate, to be born again. Now, anyone can come here at our services, but to join the church, one must be a believer. We saw in week one, mostly from Jeremiah 31. And then week two, we talked about church leadership, elder-led congregationalism. 
Last week may have been the most important sermon so far. So if you missed last week, this is one of those series that really is a package deal. Can't say everything in 40 minutes. And so if you missed last week, would I encourage you to go back and listen to that as we looked at Matthew 16 and 18 and saw that Jesus gave the power of the keys of the kingdom to the local church. The power to bind and lose, to admit and exclude, to receive and to remove. To you, the church. These two sermons especially go together, last week and this week. And so this week, again, we look at a very unpopular and hard topic known as church discipline. What Albert Moeller, who's president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I went to school, calls the missing mark. He puts it this way. He says, the decline of church discipline is perhaps the most visible failure of the contemporary church. Wow. I think he's right. The decline of church discipline is perhaps the most visible failure of the contemporary church. Back in the 19th century, John Dagg put it this way. He says, when discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. Hardly anyone, though, practices church discipline anymore, even though here it is, plainly taught in Scripture last week and this week and really all over the place. But again, I want to remind you, it hadn't always been the case. You know, we think of church history as like the, the pastor I grew up under. What's my church history? Well, in 1982, no, no, no. Let's zoom out because historically, even Baptists practiced it all the time. It just used to be the norm. In fact, I have a newspaper clip I want to show you. I got this from Doris Purcell. When I first got here, Doris was our oldest living member, passed away a couple years ago, and uh, she sent me this. So this is legit. This is an actual newspaper clipping. Skip down to the, the second paragraph. So talked a little bit about where we started, but the second paragraph there. According to historical records, members were disciplined regularly for attending street dances, dances in their homes. We'd be in trouble. We have a lot of dance parties at our house which you will never see. <laughs> Playing baseball or fishing on Sunday. Losing one's temper was also reason for investigation and possible punishment. Guilty members could be restored to full membership if they apologized to the congregation for their misbehavior. Now, they got some things wrong in here, obviously, on what they're disciplining for, but I just bring this out to say it used to just be the norm. In Baptist life. In fact, listen to a couple of numbers here. Between 1781 and 1860, it's a little less than 100 years, Baptists excommunicated more than 40,000 members in Georgia alone. Between 1845 and 1900, Baptists in the South disciplined about 1.3 million members and expelled about 650,000 members. It's because Baptists historically have believed in a regenerate church membership and they've taken passages like last week and passages like this week seriously. But by 1950, only a fading memory of the practice remained. This is why this is so new to so many of us. According to one study by the Southern Baptist Convention, the typical church, so average church, has 233 members on the roll, but only 70 actually coming on a Sunday. That's average. Now, what does this reality convey to the world about the church? What does it convey to the world about church membership? What does it convey to the world about Christianity? 
What does it say about Jesus? Is it a good representation of who Jesus is? This year in June was the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, and it recorded 14 million, just over 14 million membership in terms of members on the rolls, but only just over 4.4 million present on an average Sunday morning. 14 million on the roll, 4 million actually coming to church. What is going on? Well, I'll just submit to you that in our day, church membership has become meaningless. And what we want to be about is meaningful church membership. Historically, again, I'm a history guy. History matters. Scripture matters more, but history matters. And when Protestants would speak of true and healthy churches, they would often talk about three marks. In fact, as early as 1561 in the Belgian Confession, it says there are three marks. Right preaching, preaching the Bible, right administration of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and right practice of church discipline. So if it's so clear history and it's so clear in the Bible, why don't churches do it? I think there's a lot of reasons. I mean, it's hard. This is hard stuff, isn't it? But I'm so thankful for a church that loves God and therefore loves God's word and wants to follow God's plan for the church. Why don't others follow? Well, I mean, I think they've become pragmatic, meaning they want to do whatever works. So driven by numbers. So whatever is going to grow the church and grow the budget, even if that means compromising or ignoring the clear teaching of Scripture. Sometimes it's that church leaders lack courage, fearful that people may leave, fearful they may get fired, fearful they may get sued. Some pastors like to be able to say, well, you know, I know I only got 70 here, but I got a church of 200. They like to boast about big churches. That's sadly a temptation of many pastors want to be known for a bigger church than they actually have. That can be true of denominations as well. We're the biggest Protestant denomination in the world, 14 million members strong. The FBI couldn't find 10 million of them, but they're on the paper. Biblical illiteracy. We just don't know our Bibles anymore today. In the culture, there's this anti-authoritarianism. There's a wrong definition of what love is. And then again, speaking of our circles, the Southern Baptist Convention, the whole thing went pretty liberal there for a long time. And then around the 80s, it began to turn around. Then you have a broader American culture where increasingly secular, becoming increasingly anti-Christian. There's this individualism. You don't have anything to say to me. It's just me and the Lord. You can't have any input into my life or my church life. There's a fear of being judgmental. And in, in some cases, probably rare cases, people have seen church discipline abused. Shouldn't be disciplined for fishing on a Sunday. Whatever the reasons, what's clear is that there has been this seeping accommodation. There has been this creeping compromise in the church. Let's look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're using one of our Bibles there in the chair, it's page 897. Not a popular chapter. I'd venture to say very few of you have heard a sermon on 1 Corinthians 5. And we'll soon see why. But here's what I want you to do. Keep in mind as we walk through this neglected chapter that it's written to the local church. This is a letter for the local church in Corinth. It's not written to the elders. It's not written to the church staff. This is written to the local church. You are the intended audience. 
of 1 Corinthians 5. Well, first, what was going on? We see the situation there in chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Almost certainly not his own mom It would have used that language, but there was this member of the church sleeping with his stepmother. Gross. But notice what Paul does here. Paul doesn't implicate the guy. He implicates the church. He's not rebuking the man, but the congregation. He says, you're tolerating something that even pagans don't tolerate. By the way, isn't that countercultural, right? Today, tolerance is the great virtue, isn't it? You can't disagree with anyone anymore or you're a hater. But here, the Holy Spirit rebukes a church for being too tolerant. Jesus does the same thing in those letters to the churches in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. He says this, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she's false teaching. So both Jesus and Paul, they rebuke the church for tolerating what God doesn't tolerate. By the way, this is interesting here because, look, he's writing to Corinth, right? These are a bunch of Gentiles. And this word here for pagan is just the word for Gentile, ethne, nations. And Corinth was Gentiles. They were non-Jewish. The Corinthians were Gentiles. But here, they're distinguished from the Gentiles. You're living in a way that even the Gentiles don't tolerate. And so when Gentiles become Christians, they're no longer Gentiles. They're now part of the people of God, this third race and they're to be set apart. God has always maintained a distinct and separate people in order to display his holiness, to display his character. Started with Noah and his family, then Abraham and his family, and then Israel, separate from the nations and now the church, separate from the world. So how should the church have responded? Three ways. First, remove this one from the church. Look at verses two to five. And you're arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So not only were they tolerating this sin, they were boasting about their tolerance, but instead they should have been mourning. Ought you not rather to mourn? This is the posture we should always have towards sin. We don't tolerate unrepentant and willing outward sin, but we also don't stand above it as if we're any better. No, we mourn. Sin is terrible. Sin is destructive. Anytime we see sin, our hearts ought to break because we've been there too. We've been ensnared as well. We're no better. Galatians chapter six, verse one, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So as we go and we correct others, we're to be meek and forbearing and gentle and courteous and considerate, mourning with them. 
not standing over them. It's the opposite of being irritable or rude or abrasive. And verse two, verse two tells the church to remove him from among you. The New Living Translation paraphrases it this way, remove this man from your fellowship. He tells the church, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, remove him from the local church. Do you hear the parallels from last week? Listen again to Matthew 18, verse 17. Jesus says, we're to show him his fault if someone's sinning, if he refuses to listen, take a few. And then he says this, if he's refusing to listen to them, tell it to the church. It means assembly, gathering. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name. Notice the similarity. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus says, when you're gathered in my name, there I am among them. So Paul here says, when you're assembled, when you're gathered in the name of Jesus, that's when you are to remove him. It's the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. So when there is this serious and outward and most importantly, unrepentant sin in the local church, and those qualifiers are really important here. We all battle sin. We all fall in many ways. We're not talking about, as we do that, we're talking about serious, outward, unrepentant, ongoing, willing sin. Jesus, Paul and Jesus say, when we're gathered, assembled in the name of Jesus, we are to remove them. Look, I mean, it's just plain as day. Look again at verse four. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit's present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is the job of the congregation. This is what you've got to see. Elders lead, but elder-led congregationalism when it comes to membership and discipline. It's not the job of the staff. It's not the job of the elders. This happens in member meetings, not conference rooms. It's not an elder meeting, but the assembly. Listen to the way Benjamin Keach puts it, Old School Baptist, 1697. He says, and that the power of the keys is in the church appears to me from Matthew 18. If he will not hear the church, it is not said if he will not hear the elder or elders, as also that of the apostle, and he's talking about our passage this morning, in directing the church to cast out the incestuous person. He doth not give his counsel to the elder or elders of the church, but to the church. This is the job of the membership. And notice how Paul describes your action. It's a delivering of this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It's removing him from the church and those outside the church are in the domain of the devil. According to Ephesians 2, we were all before Christ following the prince of the power of the air. 1 John 5 says the whole world's in the power of the evil. And 2 Corinthians 4, 4 said he's the God of this age. The church though, it's the colony of the kingdom of Christ. The world is the domain of the devil. And so this is a turning over of this man to the devil's dominion. It's dangerous. Outside the church, I remember hearing one man say that the, the church is a lot like Noah's Ark. It stinks in there, but it'll save your life. 
similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A Gentile was a pagan. It's one outside the community. It's a non-Christian. In the circle, Jesus is Lord. Outside the circle, Satan is. Now, when a church comes together and ends up having to vote someone out, remove them from the fellowship, we're not saying that the person's not saved. We don't know that. We don't know the hearts. Genuine Christians can fall into serious sin. You're about Peter. Rather, it's a no confidence vote on his profession of faith because of his lack of repentance. We're saying that because his life is now at odds with Jesus. He wants nothing to do with Jesus or the church or his way. We then as a church can no longer affirm his profession of faith. We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago. Jesus says, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's those who do the will of the Father. And so if they won't listen to fellow members and won't listen to leaders, they won't turn back to the Lord, we must conclude that they're not regenerate. Because regenerate people, however imperfectly, seek to follow the Lord, seek to turn from their sin. And remember week one, we are to have a regenerate church membership. Only those who are regenerate are members of the local church. There's a front door of the church and there's a back door. And if you can put someone out, like we see here, that presupposes that you have put someone in and both are congregational acts. And what's the goal? So important. What's the goal? It's right there in verse 5. Look at it again, the second half. So that, there's our purpose statement. What's the purpose? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The goal is salvation. The goal of church discipline is always remedial. It's restoration. It's repentance. It's salvation. It's not retributive. It's restorative. There was some doctrinal issue in Ephesus. And listen to how Paul tells Timothy to handle them. In 1 Timothy 1, 19, he says, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that, purpose statement, they may learn, not to blaspheme. The goal is that they will learn. The goal is they will turn from their error. The goal is that they will come back. It's a delivering over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And remember what flesh means in Paul's writings? It refers to those who are outside of Christ. There's those in the spirit and those in the flesh. So we want to see this flesh destroyed. Listen to the way Romans 7 put it. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work on our members to bear fruit for death. We were flesh and we're now spirit. Galatians 5.24 says this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. And so the goal is the destruction of the flesh in this person. The goal is to defeat the rule of sin in their life. This is for his salvation on the last day. Therefore, contrary to what people will tell you, church discipline is an act of love. It's an act of love for the wanderer. It's an act of love for God so that we will obey him even when it's hard and countercultural. Our goal is to bring him back. James 5, if anyone wanders from the truth and a member brings him back, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. That's what we want. We want to prompt and provoke self-examination in the person. 2 Thessalonians 3.14, if anyone does not obey 
what we say in this letter, take note of that person, church, and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. We want them to see the seriousness and the desperation of the situation they're in, and we want them to see the surpassing value of Christ and life in Christ, which manifests itself in the local church. That's why, that's the reason Paul calls the church to remove him so that ultimately he would be saved. He'd come back, he would turn, he would repent. So first, remove him. Second, keep the church pure. Look at verse six. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump? as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You know, we're all hyper-cognizant nowadays about the spread of the coronavirus, what Wendy Williams calls the cornova, rightly so. But we should be much more concerned about the spread of sin in the church. He says here, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul alludes to the Passover, the feast of unleavened bread. All the leaven was to be removed from the house during Passover. The slightest bit would have the potential to ruin the whole batch of dough. Paul says it's the same with sin that it's not addressed. It's the same with unaddressed ongoing sin. It contaminates and the whole church will be infected by unrepentant sin. The pure dough will turn sour. And just like Jesus, Paul cares about unity and holiness in the church. So there in verse 7, he tells the assembled church to cleanse out the old leaven that they may be a new lump. Keep the church pure. Again, this is an act of love. This time it's an act of love for the church. We don't want the leaven to spread and spoil the whole batch. Paul's saying that Toleration of unrepentant sin leads to further sinfulness. So keep the church pure. Going back to week one, maintain a regenerate church membership. I keep saying this is all historic Baptist practice. I'm your great, 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 great Baptist grandpa from the past. Historically, Baptists were known as zealots for church purity. Nowadays, the thought doesn't even cross the minds of most Christians. We just passively shrug it off. Well, that's kind of weird. Must have been for them. Or eh, none of my business. We passively shrug it off. Paul says to be active to the church, be vigilant about the purity of the church. We've got to recover the church's calling as a holy people, a people set apart from the world. We're different. The world ought to think we're weird. A people who not only calls Jesus Lord, but follows him as such. Keep the church pure, he says. And then third, he says, judge those inside the church, not outside. There seems, seems to have been some confusion here. This wasn't the first letter that Paul wrote to Corinth. He had written one. They'd been confused, so he wrote another. He actually wrote four letters. Two of them are scripture. The other two are not. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. 
But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So in a previous letter, he had said, hey, don't associate with people who claim to be Christians but are living in willful, unrepentant sin. And they misunderstood. They, taught, they took it to mean anybody in sin. And Paul's like, listen, no, that's silliness. You can't even do that anyway. You'd have to leave the whole world. I'm not talking about the world. I'm not worried about the world. I'm worried about the church. Look again at verse 12. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So Paul clarifies. You don't worry about judging the world. God's going to take care of that. He says you need to worry about disassociating with anyone who says they're a Christian but remains an outward willing unrepentant sin. The New Living Translation, again, paraphrases it this way. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. But it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Just imagine how much more powerful the church of Christ would be if we quit worrying about judging those outside and took care of our own house first. And when we're talking about judging or evaluating one another, don't have this picture of some self-righteous person pointing a judgmental finger. No, we are helping one another follow Jesus. And sometimes that means that we need a word of exhortation, all of us. Sometimes that means we need a word of correction, confrontation, rebuke. We hear church discipline, we often think of excommunication, that last step, but there's a whole lot more to it than just that. That's corrective discipline, but there is what we could call formative discipline that's happening all the time. Right now, formative discipline is happening as we meet. Accountability and exhortation and prayer and repentance and conflict resolution and reconciliation, reading the Bible, meeting in D groups, home groups, Sunday school, fellowship, corporate worship, formative discipline is just part of discipleship, helping one another follow Jesus. The idea here is that we're in this together. And meaningful membership says we, we who are covenant together here at Southside Baptist Church are in this together. We're a family. We're a faith family. And as we stray, as we all do, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, we have brothers and sisters who will, Matthew 18, 15, show us our faults. And when it's back, who will, James 5, 19, bring us home from wandering? A family who will, Galatians 6, 1, gently restore us when we're caught in sin? Who will, Hebrews 3, exhort one another every day so that we won't fall away? Who will, Hebrews 10, not neglect to meet together, but will encourage one another as we see the day drawing near? That's what we want. We want a congregation filled with people doing the one another's. Filled with people embodying 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. We urge you, brothers, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. One author says that that's what discipline's all about, helping one another grow in Christ-likeness by correcting sin. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So we're in 1 Corinthians 5, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. 
2 Corinthians 2.6, speaking of the same man of 1 Corinthians 5. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are, are obedient in everything. Two things. Number one, this man was restored. He repented. It worked. And so what are they to do? They're to forgive him. They're to restore him. This is the goal. And then notice the second thing is Paul says this act of discipline was done by the majority. If there was a majority, there was a minority. There was regenerate church membership. There was a clearly identifiable body of people and they had a way of determining a majority. Which is why historically churches have voted members in and voted members out. Now voting has a bad rap, sometimes for good reason. One Sunday the preacher asked, can I get a witness? And the congregation said, we'll take a vote on Wednesday. But the vote is actually quite significant. The vote is congregational affirmation. The majority of the church must, to use Jesus' words, agree on earth, right? Matthew chapter 18, 19, if two of you agree on earth. And so what does this look like practically for us as we move to elder-led congregation? Well, once again, we're gonna have a, a Sunday evening service on October 3rd, 5 p.m. We'll do a little bit of singing, a little bit of Q&A on any of this stuff you wanna talk about and then some corporate prayer time together. But here's what it means. It means that Jesus gave the church the keys of the kingdom, the authority to admit and exclude, to bind and to loose, to open and close. And so your job, church member, is to guard the gospel, to receive members into the church and to remove members when necessary. And so what we will begin to do at Southside starting in November is do this at members meetings. And the vast majority of those meetings are going to be very encouraging. We're going to hear testimonies of new members and how we can pray for them and how, what kind of gifts they have. And we're going to vote in unison. There'll be lots of voting members out. We've got a transient church. And so college kids moving out, military, we'll vote them out and encourage them, figure out where they're going to another gospel, gospel preaching church and pray for that church's ministry. But sometimes discipline will have to happen. We'll have to remove people for ongoing, willing, serious, unrepentant sin. And when we do that, then what's our posture towards them? Well, thankfully, both Jesus and Paul tell us. Jesus said, let them be to you as a Gentile, a pagan, and a tax collector. In other words, as an unbeliever, one who's outside of the covenant community. And here in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 11, he says, don't even eat with such a one. Now, what does that mean? I actually don't think it means you can't actually have a meal with them. But remember, in the ancient world, the table was so much more significant than it is in our day. The table was a sign of welcome and fellowship. And so the idea is things are never the same with that person unless they repent. And so it's never just this trivial, hey, man, how you doing? It's good to see you. No, it's a, it's a reverent, sober, we're praying for you. We're concerned for your salvation. Whatever sin it may be, would you turn from it? Would you come back? Love to meet with you more. There's this seriousness now in our, in our interactions. He's not just one of us anymore. We're gracious, we're friendly, we're humble, but now we have a posture of warning 
and concern for their soul. Flippancy will mislead them about the seriousness of their situation. We want them here, so we can, they're welcome here. We want them to come. We want them to be under the, the word, but they're no longer welcome to the Lord's table. One of the ways a church exercises the keys of the kingdom is through the ordinances, baptism and communion. Listen to Balthazar Hubmeyer. Talk about old school. This is a Baptist from 1480. Born in 1480. Took him a while probably to make this statement, but listen to what he says. For in water baptism, the church uses the key of admitting and loosing, Matthew 18, keys of the kingdom. But in the supper, the key of excluding, binding and locking away. Let me say it again. For in water baptism, the church uses the key of admitting and loosing, but in the supper, the key of excluding, binding and locking away, as Christ promises and gives it the power of the forgiveness of sins, end quote. So we're baptized into the church and we show our continued faith in Jesus by continual participation in the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the birth certificate. Communion is the passport. Listen to the way one theologian puts it. Jeremy Kimball says, as a church gathers in local assemblies, the church is made visible through baptizing, professing believers, bringing them into membership, and then constantly celebrating this solidarity shared around the gospel through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the initiating oath sign of the new covenant, and the Lord's Supper is the renewing oath sign of the new covenant. Another author says membership is a covenant between believers whereby they affirm one another's professions of faith through the ordinances and agree to oversee one another's discipleship to Christ. The ordinances present the world with a picture of who the church members are. This is why historically, again, you don't see it much anymore. Historically, Protestants have fenced the table. If someone has been removed due to unrepentant sin, they're no longer welcome to the Lord's table. They're excommunicated. They are excommunions. And so when we invite, we say anyone who's in a good standing with a like-minded local church. In good standing means they're not under church discipline. Mark Dever writes, essentially the membership of a church is composed of those who are regularly admitted to the Lord's table. All right, so what are some objections to this? There's lots. What are some main ones? Well, number one, we might get sued. That's true. Churches have been sued, actually. But obedience to Jesus matters more. Number two, church discipline is unloving. Exactly wrong. It is loving. Hebrews chapter 12, God disciplines those whom he loves. You know what hatred is? It's knowing a brother or sister that they're headed to destruction and not doing a thing about it. Proverbs says that parents who do not discipline actually hate their children. Proverbs 13, 24. We do this because of love, love for God. So we obey his word so clear here. Love for the church to keep it pure. A little leaven leavens the whole up. Love for the offender because we want to see them repent and be saved. Be the opposite of love to not do this. And just let them go the wrong way. Third, aren't we all sinners? Yes. Yes, absolutely we are. And again, we're not talking about falling into sin as we all do. James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. Most of us this very morning. We're not talking about being excommunicated for, for these 
Not that any sin is minor, but for these inward sins that we battle of greed or gossip or lust or pride, we're talking about serious, ongoing, outward, and most importantly, unrepentant sin. Christians sin, but we hate it. That's the difference. Christians sin, but we repent. That's the difference. We hate it and we seek to put it to death, Romans 8. Fourth, didn't Jesus say, judge not? Well, if you were here last week, we looked at that passage. He did say, judge not, but then he qualified it and said, don't look for that speck in your brother's eye. When you have a log in your own, first remove the log and then you will be able to get the speck. So it's actually a commandment to judge. Just do it the right way, out of love, not over somebody, because you, you know, you have a log as well. Why then should we practice church discipline? Eight reasons. Number one, the Bible teaches it. The Bible's very clear about it. Number two, within that, Jesus commands it. Matthew chapter 18. Number three, it exposes sin. And number four, therefore, it keeps the church pure. And number five, it strengthens our corporate witness. Bad churches are incredibly effective anti-missionary forces. And that part wasn't supposed to be in there, but since it's there, I'll share it. Think about Armstrong or think about Phelps. Even secular corporations get this, right? And so you had Armstrong, what did they do? Well, they stripped him. Think about Phelps when he got caught with all that marijuana. What did they do? Wheaties, for example, cut him off. Why? Because even secular companies understand the importance of corporate witness. How much more the church? Number six, shows God-like love, Hebrews chapter 12. Number seven, takes holiness seriously. And then number eight, ultimately, it's for their good. That's why. We want to be a church founded on the rock that is the word of Christ. But we'll get this wrong. We'll mess it up. Why? Because we're messed up, just as you are. We all are. We're a mess in process. But listen, friends, the gospel assures us. We are assured of God's grace because of Christ. I sort of glossed over verse 7, but look again at 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Tells us to cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Tells us we're to cleanse out the old leaven to be a new lump because you really are. We're to become what we are through Christ, our Passover lamb. The judgment that we rightly deserve passes over us because Christ was our Passover lamb. He bore the penalty we deserved. Our unblemished, pure, holy Passover lamb sacrificed in our place. Debt is paid. Curse removed. Judgment passed over. So why do we do this? Because Jesus, our Passover lamb, is worthy of our complete obedience. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark, but you've given us all that we need as Christians, but also corporately. You've laid out 
how we are to order the church and we want to be a church patterned after the heavenly design. We want to be a rightly ordered church. We want to be a church founded upon and centered upon your word and so help us. So thankful for the work you've done in this congregation. This church is filled with men and women who love you and want to follow you and therefore will follow your word. And we pray that as we continue to think about these things and implement membership meetings, God, that our family would just grow with strength, that, our, that you would knit us together, that, that you would increase our affections for one another, that we would care all the more for one another and see ourselves as responsible for one another's walk with you and that we would be all in a family faith committed to your glory. And God, as we fail, thank you for Christ. Our Passover lamb, we couldn't save ourselves, but you sent him for us. We will escape the judgment because of the sacrifice of your son. Pray that you'd be honored as we close out our service for our joy, for your glory. Amen.